Welcome to Female Athlete Stories, a special series of the Endurance Drive podcast. I'm Katie. And I'm Elena. And this is our second installment of a new series that aims to blend the crowdsourced stories of dozens of female athletes in our network with our own perspectives and experiences to shed light on rewards and challenges that affect female athletes. If you missed our first episode, go check it out on the Endurance Drive podcast. And if you did catch that episode, thank you so much for listening. It's been awesome to hear from so many of our listeners and really hope to see this series will take off. Yeah, it's been fun. I feel like I've heard from people that I haven't talked to in a really long time, and I'm, I'm really glad that they're tuning in. Yeah, likewise. It's been really great to connect with people. Sweet. Well, I think first what we'll do is maybe go over a quick roadmap for today. So as we said on our last episode, there's going to be a minimum of four different episodes that cover the topics that we got feedback on in our Google form. But the topic of today is broadly the female body. And we're going to break that down into three different broader categories. So first, we're going to talk a little bit about female hormones. This is something that came up quite a bit when we were asking about what challenges affect female athletes or disproportionately affect them. So we're going to talk about periods. We're going to talk about the menstrual cycle. PMS, contraception, pregnancy, and menopause. That'll be the first big topic. And then after that, we'll jump into fueling the female body. And that's a really intertwined triad of eating disorders, REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport. And then, of course, body image, which kind of filters into all of that. It's a little bit of the forces against us, but definitely impacts how we fuel our bodies. So we want to make sure we hit on that well in this episode. Exactly. And then our very last topic for today, we'll be talking about navigating the medical system. So we got a lot of stories from people who have really just kind of felt off or not felt right or encountered different health challenges and have tried to get support from the traditional medical system and haven't really been able to do that in a female athlete context. So we just kind of want to validate those experiences, share some of our own and talk a little bit more about why we find those challenges are so pervasive in the way that sort of modern Western medicine works. Awesome. Yeah. So do you want to start jumping right into female hormones, Katie? Yeah, that sounds good to me. And I have to say I was like a little bit hesitant about whether I wanted to just start with talking about the menstrual cycle and periods because I think it's very easy for us to say like, oh, the only difference between male and female athletes is the menstrual cycle and let's just talk about it. And it's not something that needs to define you as a female athlete. But I do want to validate the fact that so many people said that this is one of the most challenging things that impacts female athletes. Totally. I think it was probably the number one challenge in that form that we had for people to submit when we asked what the challenges of being a female athlete were. This came up the most. So we definitely wanted to at least give it that amount of presence that it was showing up in our forms and talk about different ways that we experience that menstrual system around our training. Exactly. So I think there's two different things we can think about being challenges with the stories that we got. And the first one is just baseline menstrual cycle symptoms. So a lot of people talked about how they have really painful PMS and period symptoms. And that's something that male athletes just don't have to encounter. It's something that's not even necessarily on their radar. And then similarly, people talked about how their bodies just feel so different at different phases of the menstrual cycle. So Someone said, for example, that training, let alone racing on day one of my cycle feels terrible because of menstrual cramps. That's something that's really difficult to deal with. And I think it's something that hasn't always been talked about maybe as much as it should be because it's a little bit of a taboo topic. Yeah. And along with that, I think it can change over time, too, depending on what contraception you're on that we're going to talk about, how we go through different aging phases of the female body. So this impacts people in very different ways. And we kind of wanted to highlight on how no one symptom or experience is, I guess, unanimous across the female athlete population. But there are some common experiences that people have, and we kind of want to highlight across the spectrum of what we received in our form. And I think on that vein, you know, we could talk about it being challenging because some of the research that's coming out right now suggests that you might actually feel a little bit better in the first phase of your cycle. Hormones are lower. You're physiologically more similar to male athletes at that point. 
But we also saw a lot of experiences of people saying that's still a really hard time. So I think once we start to generalize and say like, oh, well, you're going to feel amazing and have superpowers in the first half of your cycle, that's not always the case. For me on my end, for example, I do tend to feel a little bit better in that first phase. But I think taking these responses just sort of opened my eyes to the fact that that is not the same and we all have to figure out where we're at. It speaks really to the importance of tracking your cycle and trying to figure out when do I feel the best, when do I feel the worst, and what modifications do I need to make to make that happen, as well as having an open dialogue with your coach, which of course can be a little bit hard if you're working with a male coach and you don't feel comfortable doing that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not very common, I would say, for coaches to come in and be like, so where are you on your cycle? And does that matter to you? (laughs) Yeah, it's something that I've tried hard to do with my athletes is just be like, hey, this is something that we can work in if you want to. Although I've said this before, I don't actually believe that you should necessarily always modify training around your cycle because you can't really control where you're going to be when you're racing. But at the same time, if you're having these debilitating symptoms, like that's where we need to make some modifications because otherwise you can just feel really frustrated when you want to be training, you want to get out there, but your body's just not operating in the same way at different phases. Yeah, I think it goes along with just knowing your body really well, too, and being able to communicate what you've learned you need and being really open to what information your body's giving you. So, I mean, Katie, you mentioned that you feel usually maybe better actually at that low hormone phase while you're on your period. Um, I'm actually kind of similar. I think I generally feel better. However, I've noticed that my mental symptoms have been getting worse over time with around mm-hmm. my periods. And that totally impacts how I feel about training too. And it's just something I have to be aware of, of getting myself more motivated during those times. But I also, we heard so many people that have really debilitating period cramps, like you mentioned. And like, yeah, that really is tough to train when you're feeling so horrible. And we also want to validate that because if you're not feeling good, you don't need to push your body harder than it needs to go. Yeah. And I would say like, if it's something that's hard to talk about, the best way to break that taboo is to just start talking about it. So here we are in the podcast, we're doing that. But if you have a coach who's not willing to engage on those topics, then you might want to get a different coach or loop in someone else who can better support your total health, especially if it's something that's this kind of debilitating in the early phases. Katie, you mentioned tracking your period. How do you do that currently? Yeah, that's a good question. And I use so I've used historically like the Garmin Connect app just allows you to do it. So you just mark when your period starts and then you can add in data on symptoms and stuff. But it's pretty good. It just, you know, you have to remember to do it when it actually happens, but it'll let you know like when it thinks that you're going to start your period just based on how your cycle has been. So if, for example, it's really late or it's not, you know, coming along, we've talked about how that could be an indicator of relative energy deficiency in sport, among other things. I think it's really valuable just as an indicator of health to say, like, is my period regular? And sometimes other things will impact that. I remember I, a couple years ago, had the flu like pretty badly and ended up being like two weeks late. And it was a red flag for me because I had very much wanted to establish a regular cycle after being in a period of reds for a while. And it was the only time that I didn't really have like this, this regular, pretty consistent, usually a 28-day cycle for me. But it's responding to your body experiencing this stressor. And then one thing I'll add is that most recently I also got an aura ring, which is cool because it gives you these basal body temperature stats every day and your body temperature is higher in the second phase of your cycle and then will drop right when your period's going to start or on the day that it does start. And so that's really cool. I think the prediction is even better because I don't even have to log anything. It's usually just like, hey, like, did you start your period today? And usually I'm like, yeah, I did. Sometimes it's not exactly right, but I think that's definitely a really cool feature. Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually did not know that at all about body temperature. I mean, I guess it makes sense, but I just didn't realize that with the aura ring. I actually don't, I don't have an aura ring, but I've been thinking about getting one. So that's kind of another uh, ad for me for maybe looking at it. 
And I'll note, Whoop does this too. So Whoop also can track menstrual cycle stuff. But something that I like more about Aura than Whoop is Whoop has this tendency to make you feel really bad if you didn't sleep well or if your recovery score is bad. It's kind of like, you suck. Like, you shouldn't, you know. <laughs> and Aura Ring's like, yeah. hey, like, you didn't get enough sleep. Just give yourself some grace today. And so I kind of prefer just the mindset shift that I get from my Aura Ring than I would from a Whoop. That's such an interesting product design like feature of how they went about that. I also used to wear Whoop and I don't anymore mainly because I got sick of having another thing on my wrist because I always had my sport watch and I can't wear something on my other wrist or if I did I felt like I was being way too much of a hardo. So the ring, the ring form factor feels like a better option. Yeah, for me it's, too. it's pretty subtle. Um, so moving on to something else that people brought up with periods, there are also just some practical problems associated with having to deal with a period in sports. So swimming is sometimes challenging. Or if you're going to go out into the backcountry for like four days, how are you going to plan around that? And I wouldn't say I have incredible advice on this. I want to validate that it's not fun to deal with and pretty challenging. But a lot of people in our gear form did actually suggest trying like a menstrual disc or a menstrual cup. There's Salt, there's I think Diva Cup, a couple other brands like that. And I personally have not tried one of those before, but it seems like that could be a better option than having to switch out a tampon three times during an Ironman or something. Totally. I've heard a lot of people say they love the Diva Cup. I also haven't used it mainly because I'm on an IUD, which we can talk about the contraceptive choices, and I don't deal with period bleeding on my cycle as much, but then have to recognize how it's going in different ways. But I would say that I've had a lot of friends use the Diva Cup for our really long backcountry adventures and find it a lot better than having to bring a bunch of tampons and change them out. Also feel better about that environmentally. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to carry around dirty tampons with you while you're on a three-day backcountry back trip. So we'll put links to other options in the show notes for if you want to check these out. Absolutely. And we'll say like if you have any other recommendations on this, if you're someone who really likes spending multiple days in the backcountry or has other suggestions, we would totally take them and we can share them on the next episode. Um I wanted to share before we move to the next topic, this one story that we got and someone was describing this 25 mile trail run that they did with two other female athletes. And she said one member of our crew was on day one of her cycle and had vicious menstrual cramps. The plan was securing an FKT that's the fastest known time. So basically getting a, a course record on a specific route. And she said the reality was dry heaving on the side of the trail. The three of us stuck together in a spirit of solidarity and felt deeply bonded by the end of the experience. Despite more breaks and walking than planned, we still got that FKT. So that made me smile. And I think sort of fast forwards to this topic on community and how it's really awesome if you're with a group of women to not feel like, oh, this is this awful thing that I'm experiencing that my training partners can't really relate to. It sounds like they kind of got each other through it and were very bonded by this uniquely female experience. Yeah, that's awesome. And love that they still got the FKT. That's even more impressive. I know. Exactly. Um, actually, one more thing before we transition that I wanted to talk about with respect to the menstrual cycle is, you know, here it's really been pitched as this challenging thing. But I think we also could flip the switch a little bit and think about the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. And that's because if you're in this relative energy deficient state, like we talked about last time, you're probably not having a regular menstrual cycle. And if you are, that's a good sign that your body is actually absorbing training pretty well. So especially for younger athletes, it can be something that seems frustrating. But I just remember when I was really trying to get out of this pattern of consistent injuries, I was like, I really just want to have a regular menstrual cycle right now. And now if I sometimes get annoyed by, you know, the practicality or different types of symptoms, I'm like, OK, well, at least I'm not going to get a stress fracture every six months. Like that's something to be happy about or proud of. And I would say also some of my most fulfilling moments as a coach, I coach uh, the Dartmouth Club Triathlon team. And 
I'm pretty close to a lot of girls on that team who have gone through some of these same challenges. And having a 19, 20 year old text me and be like, oh, my God, I got my period after not having it for a year has been one of the most fulfilling things ever. So just keep that in mind. It still absolutely sucks to be dry heaving on the side of a trail. But this is a vital sign. And the good news is you're probably absorbing your training pretty well in that situation. Yeah, thank you so much for that positive switch. And that's really exciting that you've worked with other young girls that have been able to come out of that. So thanks for doing that, because that's really important. It's very fulfilling. Um, Okay, so actually on that vein, let's transition to talking about contraception. So you've mentioned your IUD a couple of times. I would love to hear about that. I have a similar experience that I could share. But why don't you go first and just telling us how you decided to do that, how it intersects with training and how you think about it as a female athlete. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'll just caveat by saying at a high level, I wouldn't say that I've made all like my contraception choices around being an athlete. And it's kind of just how it's happened. And how I experienced it is certainly not how other people might experience it. So this is an area where we have to be like very open minded about how people are experiencing their own choices around contraception. I was on birth control like in, I guess, high school and, and early college on just like a pill. And I think I tried a few different pills and had bad experiences overall. I feel like pills are just tricky with you're putting hormones in your body and feeling weight gain or I forgot pills often and I was like, it's not working for me. I feel like this is just making me feel worse overall. So um, my senior year of college, I decided to try the Mirena IUD. And honestly, I've been really happy with that overall. I, like I mentioned before, I don't really get my period on it, which is a, a pro and a con. And the pro for me is that I don't have to deal with these practical concerns that have been talked about time and time again as being really frustrating. But I also have had to learn what other parts of my cycle feel like so that I can know if my body is healthy or not. I think it might have hurt me maybe early, early on. But I think luckily if my senior year of college, I was pretty healthy. And I think by the time I lost my period on Morena, I was mostly out of the red zone. But I've had to keep an eye on it. And the way that I experience that is mostly through how I emotionally feel. Like I can usually tell I'm about to be on my period because I feel like I want to cry for no reason at all. Yep. Um, Yep. And once I have that feeling and I've recognized it enough times to be like, all right, I don't need to be upset about whatever I think I'm upset about. I can tell that this is right before my period. Mm -hmm. So that helps me. And I mark that usually in a calendar. I kind of know exactly what my cycle is around as a result of that. And then also there's like some other things where I might feel like, I don't know if people get like sore boobs. I get sore boobs. (laughs) So that helps me know. And then I I honestly haven't kept a really close eye on it with exactly how I feel in my data when I'm training. It just is more something that I have in the background to like justify for myself, giving myself a little more grace, either emotionally or physically when I'm just not feeling my best. Um, So that's been part of it. I will say, though, that now that I'm kind of going through another phase of like intense training. I've had some instances when life has been really busy in the last year where I worry about getting enough food. I've had some conversations with my gynecologist about models that are shorter term and those shorter term ones also result often in you having more period symptoms. So I've been having conversations with my gynecologist about next year, maybe switching out to one of the lower dose ones so that I could have a better feel of my body. Totally. That's that's super valuable to know. And I think it provides a different experience than I have, even though I also have an IUD. So for you, it sounded like it was a pretty easy decision of just the practicality of switching to this IUD, like maybe even yeah. divorced from training. For me, it was interesting because I was very wary of any type of birth control since I had been on this birth control pill for almost all of college and did not know that I wasn't actually in like a state of energy balance. So 
got off that as I was trying to just get healthy again and then got to a point where I was healthy again was cycling very normally and was very much like, Ugh, like, I'm not really sure if I want to mess with that at all in any way. And then ultimately was like, well, I also don't want to get pregnant. And I had a pretty unfortunate experience with having to take plan B because of a condom breaking. And it was a situation where I was like, okay, I need to actually do something about this. This is not going to work out. So I went on this like journey of trying to learn every single thing that I could about every contraception option out there because the things that I cared about were, number one, I don't want this to impact my performance in any way. So I didn't want to feel worse. I mean, for example, the birth control pill does leave you in this high hormone state for most of your cycle. So I didn't want to have those effects. I didn't want uh, something that necessarily was going to take like any type of bleeding signal away entirely because I wanted to be sure that I wasn't in any type of relative energy deficiency state. And there aren't actually a lot of options that check all of those boxes. The third option that you could consider is um, a copper IUD is non-hormonal, but that can lead to a lot of really debilitating period symptoms. So heavier bleeding. And for me, my natural cycle was like pretty manageable. So I didn't want that to change. And I just remember being so vexed by this situation because there really wasn't a lot of information out there. And this is fast forwarding to challenges with the medical system, but I did not get a lot of support from this from my gynecologist. She was just like, yeah, like these are the options. And I'm trying to voice my very specific concerns with respect to relative energy deficiency in sport. And she was kind of like, yeah, well, maybe copper. Like it was just it wasn't that helpful. And so I ultimately did end up getting a hormonal IUD, but I got the Kylina, which is like another sister brand of the Mirena, but it's a lower dose hormonal IUD. And the effects of the Kylina can be very different for different people. Some people will still bleed on it. Some people won't. And it was quite the adjustment for me just because I think I respond very sensitively to sex hormones, like from a mental health perspective and from just overall feeling. But I've had it for about a year now, and I feel like now it's pretty solid and I do cycle in a way that I can track pretty naturally. So that's really awesome. And I think I also realized like I made this decision after I'd already had a regular cycle for probably four or five years. So in the back of my head, I was like, I think I know how to feel myself. I think I would probably know if I was really missing the mark due to just other symptoms. So that was like having a little bit of trust in myself. But at the same time, when I have, for example, like a 19-year-old asking me about contraception choices and she thinks she might be in the red zone for reds, I'm not saying, oh, you should definitely go get hormonal birth control because that's going to cover up those signals. So it's so kind of delicate or case by case. Or similarly, I might have people who I'm very worried about due to other, you know, always getting sick or always feeling cold or weight loss, but they're on hormonal birth control. And so I can't be like, hey, I really think that you might be in a red state because we don't have that clear indicator. So I just have very mixed feelings on all of this. And I think we are certainly not doctors here and we're not here to give anyone medical advice. But I think sharing our experiences is helpful because the calculations are always going to be really different. And a lot of these issues are really challenging in the female athlete domain. No, I think that is uh, really hitting it hard on why there's really no good options out there. I think that also might explain why the medical system can be so challenging here is because you have these different things you're trying to weigh and there's really not like a great option they can point to and say, this is exactly what you should do. But we would hope that they would be able to have more educated conversations with us about how we're trying to navigate through this. So I think the summary being, if you're really concerned about reds or you're not really sure if you're feeling yourself well, 
see if you can get an option that is allowing you to be more natural with it. And if you're looking for practical reasons, uh, like I was, I feel like the IUD has been great. If you feel like you can be on top of fueling yourself, but know that you have to be really on top of that. And (laughs) you're not going to get the same kind of signals from your body to really clearly show if you're not. So I wish that wasn't so hard for women to Mm -hmm. balance contraception, especially with training. But yeah, it's challenging. Totally. And one more plug I'll do is I actually wrote a blog post on this whole saga that's on the Endurance Drive website. So we'll link that in the show notes. But the funniest thing is that is actually one of our biggest hits on the Endurance Drive website. So of all the things, it's like the Zwift workout sampler and the contraception blog post. So it's obviously something that people are looking for some information on. Again, we are not doctors, but uh, happy to share our perspectives. Yeah, that SEO, man, it must be really popping <laughs> for, for that contraception exactly. choice. Awesome. Okay, so next topic. This is on the flip side of contraception, but we had a lot of people write in and say one of the most challenging things about being a female athlete is pregnancy. So there's a lot of themes that came out of that. I think one of them is that for females, peak fertility is also peak athlete performance time. So sort of that like late 20s through 30s is a time where just from a practical standpoint, you're probably going to want to start a family if you want to do that. And then it's also the time where you're seeing the very best performances in most endurance sports. And that's challenging. It's not that you can't come back after having kids, but even just from a practical standpoint, like the nine months that you're pregnant and then the recovery from that is not a time where you're going to be winning the Ironman World Championships while you are actively pregnant. Although Chelsea Sidrow and others have shown that you can come back and then do it right after. Yeah, which is super cool. There's plenty of examples that inspire me, honestly, of women who have come back from pregnancy and having even better performances than pre-pregnancy, which is interesting. And I honestly, I would love to do more research around that and understand um, the factors at play there. But I think there's other components of pregnancy that have come up in some of the stories we've heard that affect how we think about training. For example, you have a kid and then you have a family. And for women, that can look many different ways, of course. But I think your your inherent balance and time for yourself and how you think about hitting your training will look very different once you have a family. So how people navigate that change of priority can be a big, big life shift, especially when it comes from how we're thinking about our athletic goals and when timing, I guess, when we would might want to have kids versus when we might want to lean in more to training. And then similarly, People experience, I think, a lot of body image concerns through pregnancy. And of course, I mean, Katie and I are talking about this. We have not been pregnant. (laughs) We both, though, aspire, I think, to have families. So we've talked about this before. And I think we've already internalized some of this messaging around how pregnant bodies can be training versus coming back from having a child. And we recognize that this looks different for every person. And I think we'll give ourselves grace in that process, but want to validate that a lot of women have experienced like, hey, I saw that this woman was running like there's a famous example of this woman named McKenna Myler who got a lot of attention for running a 530 mile one week before giving birth to her daughter which Mm -hmm. is super cool like seriously like go McKenna that is awesome um that is not the expectation for most women out there and neither should it be that you are expected to come back and run your best marathon time ever after having a kid like five months ago Yeah, I think a lot of people are thinking like, okay, I need to lose this baby weight really, really fast, for example, because I saw that other people do this. Everyone's going to be super different on that. And that's probably a really hard metric. Like the whole take home of all this, whether it's the menstrual cycle, whether it's contraception, whether it's pregnancy, you can't play the comparison game because there are so many differences across female athletes, even though there are a lot of shared experiences among them. Yeah, totally. I think that's the main point we want to hit on is don't focus too much on comparison because we've actually now gathered very, very different experiences and stories. Um, 
So I guess, Katie, I'm kind of curious because we were both thinking about having kids at some point. Like, how do you currently think about your balance of training versus being a mom at some point? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard because I feel like I'm at this phase in my life where I am so busy right now. Like, I barely have five minutes to myself right now, and I don't actually have many obligations besides to myself. So the idea of having to kind of shift my life around to be able to give fully to someone else, which who takes up a lot of time, a kid, that's pretty challenging. And I feel like it does sometimes give me a little bit of this like scarcity mindset for my current level of training and adventuring. It's like, do I want to do another Ironman before I have kids? I know I'm not doing one this year. Maybe I'll do one next year. It's definitely a little bit of pressure. And then even just thinking about, you know, these days I have a pretty flexible schedule. And if there's a really beautiful sunny day in February, I'm going to go out and ride my bike for three hours if I can. That's something that's not really an option once that shifts. So I think I'll just need to come to terms with being ready for that big life shift and realizing that it's going to impact me in a lot of ways. But I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty scared about it. And even though that's what I ultimately want, I think there will be some tension there. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I feel very similarly. I think that for me, I'm thinking about having kids in like maybe four or five years. So it's giving me a little bit more time. But also that decision was mostly because I feel like I want this time right now to lean in harder to being an athlete. Mm -hmm. And then also, and this is where I said earlier that I want to do more research and understanding on some of these stories. But I, I totally see myself being able to have more of an athletic career after having kids as well, but fully recognizing that that will look a lot different. And it might mean that how I train looks different. I might have to do a lot more cross training or my mileage might come down. Or I'm just okay with doing less training, but trying to squeeze in more intensity in that and and see how that affects me, I guess. But I recognize that things will look a lot differently for me. That's what I'm most concerned about right now is like the life yeah. level and then the training kind of filters into that. Yeah, I think that's so valid. And like the more that we both talk about it, I'm like, wow, there's a lot here that I don't know if I've even fully wrapped my head around because it would be such a big life shift. But the bottom line is we want to hear from you. So if you are thinking about having kids, if you've had kids, if you have kids that are grown up, you know, we've really seen people move through this entire life stage. And we're curious for your thoughts on training. And we're going to return to this topic. Uh, we're going to talk about balance in a later episode on the forces that we're up against. So I think we'll probably come back to this. and Maybe we can get some experiences in the meantime. OK, I want to transition us to our last topic on female hormones. And so I'm going to actually just read a quote that we got here from one of our favorite athletes in our network. And she said, physical changes due to age are no joke. It's depressing as hell to have a slowing metabolism, decline fitness levels, increased hormonal swings, and the list goes on and on. I feel like a stranger in my body half of the time. I miss the days of being thinner, fitter, and more sprightly, and of not peeing my pants every time I do a hard ride or push on a run. I'm proud of my body and what I can do and don't measure success on weight, but would love to feel like I'm not going backwards as I age. So this topic here is perimenopause and menopause. And again, that's not where you're both at right now, but I've coached athletes who are in this situation. And I'm sure this is a really hard thing to go through. And it's also something that has very little research and relatively few role models because historically, you know, women in earlier generations just weren't that active to begin with. It was much more of an exception. So I, I hope that, Elena, when we're like going through this, it'll be kind of different because our generation of athletes will have just aged up and hopefully is still moving around a lot. But this is just just validating that this is really challenging and something that I don't think men experience through aging in the exact same way with these major hormonal changes. Yeah. And I guess I'm curious on that, Katie, as a coach, and I have my own takes on this, but how do you approach, do you approach training any differently or how do you navigate that with your athletes? 
I do. Yeah. So, I mean, I think for my training plans, mostly we continue doing a really good amount of strength training and speed. So like hill bursts and things like that, because that type of stuff can really drop off and you want to be maintaining really good bone density. So, you know, we've talked about relative energy deficiency in sport where like you might not be getting enough estrogen if you're not on a natural cycle. But menopause is this natural process of weakening of bones and not getting the same amount of estrogen. And so, we need to really bulletproof those with that good strength training and speed and hill type stuff. But I find that athletes who are in that state often also need a lot more recovery too. So it's being very, very, it's not the time to do just like massive, massive amounts of aerobic stuff. Obviously, zone two is always important, but that 20% when we talk about 80-20 needs to be so crucial. And then also that heavy lifting. Yeah makes a lot of sense. I am similar. I think strength work has been shown to be incredibly impactful for older women, particularly, especially going through menopause for the bone density concerns that you mentioned. I also do speed. I think I focus a little bit more on hill work, like you're saying, hill sprints, mainly because it's lower impact. So you were mentioning that recovery aspect. I also see that. So lower impact speed work can get you the same gains as doing, you know, flat speed work, but the recovery can be a little bit less, which is great. So I, I think I mostly focus on that. And then apart from that, I think maybe even more cross training, just like also from the recovery aspect, but it depends on the sport, obviously. And I, I guess I'm more focused on running than triathlon, where I guess triathlon, you're always technically cross training, doing a bunch of different things. But on the running side, introducing more cycling, more hiking, more skiing, anything that is kind of lowering that impact uh, to try to help with recovery. I love that. And one thing I'll also add here, again, we're not doctors, we're not here for medical advice, but I have anecdotally heard a lot of more athletes who are going through perimenopause or menopause having a lot of success with HRT, so that's hormone replacement therapy. And that can take a lot of different forms, but it is a way to mitigate really, really bad menopausal symptoms. And there was a great New York Times article that I will link in the show notes about how HRT got a really bad rep in the early 2000s because there were some misquoted statistics on major news outlets. And so a lot of people were like, this is not something you should do. But the more recent science has really disproved that. And it speaks a lot to how, you know, women's health can often be kind of gaslighted and there haven't been these wholesale changes in how the medical system approaches menopause. But there are solutions out there. So if you haven't checked that out, at least start with the article, then talk to your doctor or find a specialist who's at least interested in having that conversation because I've seen it really change lives in terms of just quality of life during menopause. Awesome. I hadn't heard of that as much, actually. So that's I will check that out as well. Okay, I think we're ready to transition. We spent a good amount of time on female hormones, but I think now we want to move into a totally different or maybe related, but definitely different set of topics that we're calling fueling the female body. And these topics came up a ton throughout our Google form, again, mostly as challenges. So I just want to start by highlighting the fact that if disordered eating or a diagnosed eating disorder or body image issues or relative energy deficiency in sport are a challenge for you, you are not alone. It was really surprising to me, and maybe it shouldn't be surprising, but just this shined a lot in our forms. So maybe we could start with a quote that illustrates just how pervasive this is, but someone wrote in terms of a challenge, most women athletes I know, especially cyclists, struggle to find clothes that fit our muscular bodies right, including athletic clothes. This interacts in evil ways with my fraught relationship with food, which every female endurance athlete I know has struggled with. Overall, I think the necessity and feedback associated with fueling for endurance sports has helped the food situation, but it's also hard not to compare my body to others and feel insecure when clothes don't fit right. And I think we don't always start with talking about these challenges we might have with food or body image, but I similarly think almost every 
female endurance athlete that I've gotten closer with has at one point or another even just had some like negative thoughts related to food or body. So that's what we're going to unpack now. Yeah. And that's the line that really stood out to me, too, that every female endurance athlete I know has struggled with. I feel very similarly. Um, There's a really incredible runner. Her name's Allie Ostrander. She has a great YouTube account if you're interested in following her. But she was giving some stats on this. And I think the formal stat from research is like 50% of female endurance athletes have experienced eating disorders in some way, shape or form. And she was saying, and I totally agree that anecdotally, it feels more like 90 to 95%. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I, we're not trying to push that across the board. This is just what we've interpreted from anecdotally from our experiences and what we're seeing through this form. So definitely want to validate that if you think you're experiencing or have experienced some kind of disordered eating patterns or maybe had reds or, or think through body image concerns and how it relates to food, that is seemingly ubiquitous. And I think the question we have to ask is, why do we continue to blame ourselves when we are seeing this across the board? So like, it's clearly systemic. So how do we break into that system and start to fight that? And I think a lot of that comes from conversation and education, which is, I guess, what we're trying to start here. Yeah, that's what we're doing. So we thought that actually... What we would do now is dive in a little bit more to our experiences with this because we talked about it a little bit in the last episode, but I think there's more space to just share those experiences and acknowledge that these are not everyone's experiences. So eating disorders, disordered eating can take many different shapes and forms. We're not going to go through all of them right here, but there's a lot of really great resources out there where you can kind of learn a little bit more or realize like maybe you don't fit into one clinically diagnosed box, but sometimes you just have these thoughts that are challenging. And so there really is that full spectrum. But We want to share these stories because I think there is this power in making you feel like you're not all by yourself. And these things can be situations where you feel really alone. So we're happy to be in places where we feel really open to sharing that and validating the idea that you can get out of it. You can totally recover from these challenging times. But I think that's maybe where we'll start for this next segment. Yeah, I'm excited to dig in with you, Katie, because I know we previewed it a little bit on our previous episode, but there's so much more, I guess, detail. And I mean, I think we said it at the time, but this was a 10 year plus journey. And I think once you've experienced this, it's always going to be on the back of your mind in some way, Mm -hmm. shape or form. So really curious to hear a bit more of how you navigated all of that. So if you wouldn't mind kicking us off, would Mm -hmm. you be able to go back in and kind of describe how you first realized you were in a disordered eating pattern? What led to that? Um, and maybe we start at the beginning and I, and I can go from there. Sure. Yeah, that sounds good. And I think for me, you know, I talked in the last episode about how at various times in my life I've struggled with reds and then some disordered eating and then some body image stuff. And I think for a lot of people, maybe these are all happening at the same time. For me, they sort of didn't always overlap in the same way. So I talked about experiencing reds in high school really unintentionally where I just didn't know how to fuel myself. And for me, disordered eating came into the picture more when I got to college and started to just think a little bit more about eating kind of clean and changing the way that I approached food for the first time. And I think the challenging thing with eating disorders or disordered eating is that often it can start in really subtle ways. It's not necessarily like you wake up and you're like, today I'm going to, you know, cut certain things out of how I'm going to eat. It is these subtle, subtle changes for many people early on. So for me, I think I made a lot of subtle changes to my life or maybe more dramatic ones as I went to college where You enter this environment where you're in charge of getting to bed and waking yourself up and doing your laundry and everything that you put in your mouth. That's all up to you. Whereas in high school, I mean, I was very fortunate to grow up in a house where my mom made dinner every night and I didn't have to think about it and would pack my lunch and there's breakfast and all these different things. I never had to think about it. So in college, that was up to me. And I think I had this idea that, you know, I was on my own and I wanted to be 
perfect. I want to do really good and do everything right. And that involved, you know, getting a good night's sleep every night. And I wasn't really going out very much. I think I partied a lot harder in high school, actually, than I did in college. And then I also really wanted to eat healthily. And I think, again, that was stemming back to these ideas about like, well, it seems like everyone goes to college and just drinks a ton of beer and then their body changes. And again, this any type of weight changes during freshman year in college, I think for a lot of people are just normal adult development. But I was a little bit concerned about that. And so I started to make these subtle changes to what I was eating that were really simple at first. It's super easy to say like, okay, well, if I was going to have a sandwich, like I could take the cheese off it. But I could also take one of the two pieces of bread off it. And then before you know it, it's like, well, I could just do lettuce. Like that could also be fine. And so there's this slippery slope of what can I cut out here and there. And I think I really didn't know that it was happening. And another thing I'll point out is that, at least for me, I was never like, oh, I definitely have disordered eating patterns or have an eating disorder, even though I knew what that was. I learned about it in middle school health class. And I think I only realized that there was a problem when I came home from that freshman fall. So this really was only a period of about three months that this happened. And I came home and I think I had mentioned to my mom that just like I felt like I was thinking about food a little bit more. It was a little bit hard for me. And it was really sweet because she was like, oh, just like stock the fridge with lots of different things so that you have lots of options when you got home. And I like walked in the door after being gone. I was super homesick. I think Probably I was also pretty depressed and pretty anxious, but I didn't have words to describe those things at the time. Walk in the door and realize that she's stocked the fridge with 2% fat yogurt instead of non-fat yogurt. And I remember I like backed away from the kitchen, went upstairs, took a shower and had a full on panic attack in the shower because my mom bought 2% yogurt. Like that's not normal. And I feel a lot of compassion for past me experiencing that. But even in that moment, I also didn't even know what a panic attack was. I was just like, I'm not sure why I can't breathe, but I can't. And I think it just speaks to this thing that like it just gets out of control so quickly and you can do so much damage in that really short time. You said three months. Sorry, just three three months. Yeah. It's just so this this and it probably only started a couple weeks into college. So it could have been like two and a half months that really I didn't know that anything was going on, but I was really restricting what I was eating. And I dropped a lot of weight during that time for someone who shouldn't be losing weight. Were you were you weighing yourself purposefully? Were you like keeping track of that on a scale? I wasn't. I remember actually when I came home, I like knew what I weighed before I went to school and then came home and just hopped on the scale and was like, what? I would have assumed that just because I had crossed the threshold of college, I would have gained weight and I'd lost a lot of weight. But at that point, sort of those neural circuits had already rewired. And so it wasn't just a matter of like, OK, good. We didn't have the freshman 15 like we had the reverse freshman 15 um, and then it was hard to come back from. So anyway, the good news is that I did come back from it and that anyone can come back from it, I believe. But it involved, you know, working with a dietitian and working with a therapist through sort of an outpatient type thing. I did go back to school regularly, but it did take some time. And I would say it probably took another year, even though it was only like a two and a half month period to really feel like I was doing the right thing. And then you kind of move out of this spectrum from, okay, really bad eating disorder into, well, disordered eating, you know, until finally you reach this point where you're not thinking about food all the time and you realize that you shouldn't actually be hungry all the time. And you realize that you could just go eat a burger and no one will die. Like other people do it. It's it's fine. It can actually be really enjoyable. So, but yeah, it was, it was a dark time. So that was basically my freshman year. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. I know that's, um, you mentioned before, but it would have been good to know each other our freshman year. It's interesting. I just kind of want to highlight this, that for us, it seemingly was worst our freshman year. And to any college students we have listening, again, just want to say that 
it's a really tough transition and so much about disordered eating is coupled with control or lack of control and, and perfectionist tendencies which are super common in you know high achieving people regardless so it makes a lot of sense again though we wish that it wasn't so common and also hard to recognize the signs and kind of get help so i guess katie i'm really curious you mentioned getting better was that all self-driven how did you really navigate that that year um, so I think it helped a lot to work with a dietitian. It helped to work with a therapist. I don't know that I clicked perfectly well with a therapist, but I think it didn't hurt. Um, but I think the biggest thing for me was actually just surrounding myself with the right people. So eventually finding a group of friends. This was largely through the Dartmouth Triathlon team. That was a really big part of my life. But finding a group of people who really just wanted to go to team dinner and all eat together and have a big plate of food and we're all going to get ice cream after and things like that. Just spending time with those people. I think helped me realize like, oh, like this can be a joyful experience and this can be something that's not so challenging. I think a lot of this stuff really thrives in stealth or secrecy. You really can kind of isolate yourself and not want to eat around other people. But forcing myself to be like, well, I'm going to go to team dinner was really helpful. But I would say that dynamic can go the other way, too. And I know you talked about how if there's a team where this is a pervasive issue, that can be the most triggering thing in the world. And I think early on, interacting with people who were probably going through something similar was very challenging for me because that would just bring me right back into being a little bit more restrictive. And so for me, yeah, the biggest thing is surrounding yourself with the right people and also seeing that when I was feeling myself, I was actually performing a lot better. I was a lot faster. I was not bonking. I was, you know, doing better and better and better, which just pushes against this narrative of like the leaner you are, the faster that you're going to be. I can say with complete certainty that the most I've ever weighed in my life has always been my strongest performance. Like where I've stabilized as an adult is way faster than where I was at as a high schooler, as a college student, because I'm just more durable and I think a lot healthier. Yeah, I think that's true across the board is if you let your body get to its set point, it's going to perform the best mm -hmm. that it can possibly perform. But that positive reinforcement has to be experienced first. And I feel like that is really powerful for how people kind of start making the positive changes is recognizing that, you know, when you're eating that big cookie and feeling all carved up, you're going to go have a great performance. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's big. I'm also curious, you said it kind of happened all in kind of different times. How did you feel about your body at this time? And how did that kind of, how did that interact with this? Yeah, it was, it was interesting to reflect on this a little bit because I think actually body image issues weren't what triggered the eating disorder in the first place. It was like, again, being happy with where I was at because I talked about getting all this validation growing up for having this leaner body just naturally, but it wasn't that I had an issue with it. And then I think it was only after my body started to reach its adult form and after I sort of came out of this really dark time, gained some weight back, like actually put on some body fat. I think that was where some of the body image issues started to come into play. But it wasn't necessarily internal. I think for many people, it may be internal. It's sort of these societal ideals and expectations. But at least for me, I was not really on social media very much in college. Like I didn't have Instagram. I got that after college and I wasn't really clued in to what other bodies looked like other than the people on my team, really. But after I graduated and I was at a much healthier place, I think the deeper that you get into sport, the more you encounter what the universe of sport can look like and you get exposed to those social media ideals and you get exposed to a much larger audience of people that might be paying attention to your body. And early on in my getting a, to be a more serious triathlete, the people I trained with generally were men. I trained with a lot of men and 
I definitely have had my fair share of really not okay comments about body that probably led me to be a lot more critical of where I was at. And luckily, I think I had steeled myself against slipping back into any disordered eating patterns by that point, but it still just messes with you. You know, it's not good for a mental health perspective. And even just feeling really bad about yourself, even if you don't act on it, is not the best place to be for performance. So I remember there was this one time where I rode my bike for 600 miles from San Francisco to San Diego. It was the California Coast Ride, which is this five-day ride that you can do. And I think I was 22 at the time, and I had finally reached this very healthy place. So having a regular menstrual cycle and was not in this red zone anymore. And I biked 600 miles with this big group of guys, mostly. I think there were probably 25 guys and maybe three other women. And the guys were all um, mammals, M-A-M-I-L, middle-aged men in Lycra, which we say both pejoratively and affectionately. But anyway, I did this five-day ride and we made it to the end. And I was sitting at dinner with a bunch of the guys and people were drinking. And this one guy who I don't even know that well turns to me and he goes, Clayton, it is so incredible how much power you can generate from those little sausage legs. And I remember sitting there and being like, I just biked 600 miles. I dropped a bunch of these guys on many of the days. They were bonking all over the place and I crushed it. And the only thing that he has to say to me has to do with the fact that I don't have like sinewy, totally jacked calves because I'm 22 and I'm just sort of at the tail end of puberty. And that's how fat distributions look at that age. And it sucked because I flew home and I was like, well, I'm not that proud of my performance because all I can think about is this thing that this guy who means nothing to me said to me and things like that I think get burned in your mind and live there rent-free for a long time and I think I've worked really hard to just ignore those comments but I've gotten them and I would say too like my body has changed just naturally over time too I have put on more muscle mass as I've gotten older and I'll still get kind of weird backhanded comments this same guy followed up years later on a ride and said hey like look, you're finally getting some definition in those calves riding behind me. And it's like, really, has he been thinking about it for six years? Because I have to. So anyway, that story just illustrates like this stuff is out there all the time. And I think that has always been challenging for me because when you hear people say things like that, you know, they're thinking about it all the time. When you hear people talk about other women's bodies, you know, they're thinking about your own, even when they're thinking about other women's bodies in a positive way. It just makes you hyper aware. Yeah, absolutely. That comment might not have stood out to maybe other men in the room, would be my guess. It might seem like very subtle, but I think to any woman listening, you Mm -hmm. recognize how that lives in your brain rent-free forever Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how you you remember that and makes you think about, man, exactly like you said, if he's commenting on my body or... I mean, even if they're talking about other women's bodies, well, then clearly if they're talking about other women's bodies, then I'm internalizing the fact that they're probably thinking the same thing about me. And then those perfectionist tendencies and how you think about yourself as a performer and as an athlete, of course, is going to make you want to have that more of an ideal that you think they're imagining in your head. But you know that your performance is how you feel right now Mm -hmm. and you're crushing it, like you said. So, um, yeah, that is tricky. And I'm Sorry that you went through that, but I feel like that is a universal experience for women in this world. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think, honestly, the one thing that has helped is spend more time training with women because I've never had any women say anything like that to me. And I'm not going to say that there aren't comments that women will make to each other. That certainly can happen. But at least in the networks that I surround myself with, that's just never come up. It's never a default response to comment on what someone's body looks like, because I think we all know that we're all pretty critical of our own bodies and not surrounding yourself with people that do that is probably a good first step. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that just reminds me of another part of Good for a Girl that I thought was great, where Lauren wrote that, like, you look fit as the ultimate compliment because it means you look lean uh, and you look healthy as code for looking fat. Like, still, sometimes it makes me uncomfortable when people call attention to the ways that my body has changed over time, even when it's implied as a compliment. So maybe the takeaway there is, like, two things. One, recognize that, and I think I said this last time, but I really believe that fitness is a feeling, not a look. So be okay with how you feel in your own body. And two, avoid commenting on body and mm-hmm. comment on performance, effort, attitude. Like, yeah. Right? There's a lot of other yeah. things you can A lot of other things. Yeah. Definitely avoid the you look fit. And now, how would you say that you, you know, process these ideas? How do they still affect you? How have you come through it? Yeah. I mean, I feel really solid on a lot of these things right now, but I would also say that like, Everyone has good days and everyone has bad days. So there are always going to be days for many people where you wake up and you're like, you know, not an amazing body image day. And I think the biggest thing to just acknowledge is like those feelings can exist without acting on them. It's like I'm still going to get up and I'm still going to fuel myself and I'm still going to do my prescribed workout instead of tack extra miles on. And I'm just going to give myself a little bit more grace during this time. But I think I want to validate that it never 100 percent goes away, those types of thoughts. And it's more just how you respond to those thoughts and just notice them and be mindful about them and then just let them go and move on with your day. That's something that's helped me a lot. And again, surrounding myself with the right people and talking about the fact that it's still hard sometimes. Like, I think we want to make this a really open place. So if you're like, okay, well, I think I'm better from, you know, a clinical diagnosed eating disorder, but also I sometimes feel bad about my body. Like, that's okay. There can be these tensions here. And we just probably want to say you are enough where you are and give yourself a lot of grace because it's not your fault as an individual. It's this system that we've talked about. And you want to be able to acknowledge that and not beat yourself up about those feelings because they're very real. Yeah, thanks. I think that's a really important message to put out there that, you know, there's never going to be a a perfect like I'm better moment. But learning and like getting better at how you treat yourself and talk to yourself over time. And then finally, to that point of community and and being around the right people, environments will shape you no matter what. Even if you are super aware of how the environment might be shaping you, it will still rub off on you. So try to put yourself in really healthy environments. Exactly. So I think we can segue to you. Sorry, I feel like I took up a lot of time on the the Katie saga, but I'd love to hear more about her story as it as it pertains to sort of eating, body image, reds, all of the above. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, I really appreciate your story because I actually do think there's some contrasts. I, like, I would say that for me, the disordered eating and body image were very intertwined. And then maybe like the reds, of course, goes with disordered eating. And then I've experienced it more recently accidentally. So it's like a little bit different of how I switched around. But I guess the summary is I feel like I grew up never concerned about how I was eating, which was really great. I was just eating as much as I could all the time. I took pride in bringing like a giant Ziploc bag full of snacks to high school with three sandwiches and eating it. I remember I had like one of my breakthrough cross-country races my sophomore year after having four bagels after school. (laughs) So uh, I probably was like good on the carbs for a while. And then I was a late puberty person. I didn't grow and get my period until I was 16. So I was a junior. And I went away for hockey that year to Vermont. And my environment was about 30 to 40 really intense, committed high school girls. And so that environment, I think, first had its effect by me seeing disordered eating happen around me and seeing, I mean, these girls were all very elite. We had several, you know, U18 national team people that were committing to D1 college programs, et cetera. 
So I saw this commitment to performance and some of the the best athletes being very clean in how they were eating. So it was a little bit different. It wasn't like maybe how I would describe full of disordered eating, but it was a focus for the first time on like eating, you know, just a chicken breast and some veggies and maybe a little bit of rice. And it's the slippery slope that you describe, right? Of like, maybe I just won't have that cookie or I won't have a plate of pasta. I'll have a chicken breast and vegetables and that's clean. And I think I also realized I was putting on fat for the first time because I had gone through puberty. And from the perfectionist side of me, I saw having any fat as not being fit or lean enough. Um, And really, that was just a natural thing my body was doing. But to me, it seemed, you know, I hadn't been able to prevent puberty from from hitting me, I guess. So that was the beginning of it. But it wasn't that crazy. I really was just trying to eat clean. I'd go through phases, but not, nothing too bad. I think I was relatively well-fueled. Um, but then, similar to you, I went to college. And I think that interacted with more body image pressure. Like Again, as a perfectionist, I wanted to look like these really fit, lean, skinny girls that everyone was kind of talking about as being the most attractive. I also wanted to be a really fit, strong athlete. So all this to me meant being super lean, like you were saying. Like, I didn't mean that I wasn't strong. I was like excited to put on muscle, but I wanted to be really lean. I didn't want to show any fat. And then that also interacted with the control aspect of, you know, wanting to do life on my own really well. And so I was going to be really healthy. So that I felt was really similar in what you were describing. And that kicked off again for me, it was also three months, probably. I think that's another thing that I wanted to call out. Like maybe some people experience this over long periods of time. My bout with it was really three months, I would say. For me, it was like I came back really depressed from the first part of hockey season. I came back from the holiday break. We had like six days off for Christmas because of how hockey training worked and game schedule. So it wasn't that much time off. And during that time, I was like, I'm going to come back and be the fittest possible. I'm going to be like as good about everything as I possibly can and started restricting like in calorie counting. So I remember I would like wake up, do a morning workout on my own and then plan my day based on how many calories I was going to have at what intervals. And I was cold all the time. So I would drink hot water bottles, which is already a weird thing. And I was then slowly hurting my body. And one thing I wanted to say about that, too, is that with the hockey team, And I don't know how common this is at other NCAA programs. I think it's not uncommon, but we got weighed every single day when we weren't going to lift. Like we would step on a scale and you'd look at your weight and you would see the trainer write it down. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I just knew that I wanted to be leaner. So I wanted to see the weight on the scale go down. It was like put in my face every single day. And I don't really know what weight had to do with our fitness. But one thing that I've always been a little bit upset about is that when I was going through this, I also dropped a lot of weight. I dropped about 20 pounds and I think like a couple months and I shouldn't have been dropping that much weight. And no one ever like pulled me aside and said anything to me about it. And I was like, in, in hindsight, I'm kind of like, what were you doing with this information? Like uh, you were seeing me drop 20 pounds. Where was the like, hey, what's going on? Are you purposely doing this? What's happening? So that was, I think, a miss systemically. And again, I think this is really common too. I, I wouldn't say that I saw teammates having this to quite the extent that I was maybe experiencing it, but I really don't know. It was not talked about. And I think it was pretty common in the athletic groups that I saw in the dining rooms anyways. So it was more normalized. And coming through the spring, you mentioned the slippery slope. I remember coming home and trying to turn it off over spring break. I was like, oh, I'm on spring break for my family. I'm going to have like a normal meal and eat dessert. And I couldn't. I also had a panic attack that I didn't realize was a panic attack. I was like, why am I so anxious about eating a piece of chocolate tort? Like it was it was really jarring. I was like, I thought I could turn this off. And in that moment, I think I understood for the first time 
what eating disorders really are and I understood how it could get out of control. And so I wanted to get better, but I didn't really know how. And I think similarly to what you experienced with like being around the right people, I had to kind of navigate that slowly. And I think I started making more male friends. And I mean, to their credit, they probably had no idea what was going on in my brain, but we would go to get food at dining halls and they'd get like burgers and stuff. And I'd be like, well, I guess I'll have half a burger. And it was like a slow like ease back into being more normalized. Um, And I did quit hockey at the end of the season because I think it was just not the right environment for me. And I clearly, like I said, was struggling and, and not all that happy. And that really helped too, because once I started working out on my own, was able to start putting together that positive reinforcement of like, wow, I had that big oatmeal cookie and I felt awesome today. And like, I'm getting better and better. And the more I feel myself, the better I feel. And that was really honestly what kind of kicked the flywheel back into the right direction of like, I got to fuel, I got to take care of myself. And that was what was kind of holding me back before was feeling like I was getting leaner by the metric being the scale and not actually any measured performance. Um, so that was, I think, the the main journey I experienced. The other thing I'll just say there too is that I actually had a really weird injury when I was going through all this. I was working out too hard and not eating and my spine, I guess like one of my discs actually got inflamed onto one of my spinal nerves and I was bedridden for like a week. Like I couldn't move. And wow. that was, I think, purely because of just the stress I was putting on my body. And I didn't put, the, put that together at the time at all. Of course, now it seems really obvious. <laughs> so sure. I think that also helped me in the recovery of being like, wow, look what happened when I wasn't feeling my body all that well. Like I got this really, really weird injury that went away when the inflammation went down. But like if you're not taking care of your body, it's going to act out in strange ways. So that was, the, I guess, the, the main journey of it. It was really just my freshman year of the bad bout. But of course, I wanted to say that like, and to your point that you mentioned, does it fully ever go away? Like that was a journey of recovery, I would say. The next three years like it was slow i'd start eating some things i'd see the match with performance but it really wasn't until i was around a really healthy group of women in seattle after college that i i think i feel like fully strong and better about how i approach food because in those environments it was like we were making food all the time we were like going out and doing big things people were bringing candy it was just so all in that i realized that fuel looked however it could look for me and i just need to feel my body. And like that was an anything goes kind of thing. Of course, I try to eat like relatively healthy and get all my macronutrients, but like I'm totally okay with having a giant piece of cake because I need the carbs <laughs> to go do what I need to do. Um, so I think that was really the the change. Yeah. And actually on that point, yeah, I would say that all this messaging that we get around diet culture and what's good and what's bad, that actually does not apply to athletes. Like so many athletes are in this state of underfueling that I think the first thing you need to do is just make sure that you're getting enough calories. And then sure, we can talk about the composition of those calories. But if it's like you finish your workout and the only option is cake, like you get that cake down as soon as you possibly can. And then, yeah, if you can layer on some protein later, like awesome, but get calories in and just close out everything that you think you've been taught, especially as a woman about what you should and shouldn't be eating. I think that's the environment we live in. It's not our fault that this stuff starts to internalize in that way. I, I think it's interesting, too, because now I feel so far removed from my college self in terms of how I thought about eating and, and nutrition. And I almost can't relate to that anymore. It's interesting talking about this now because I'm tr I'm remembering little details of like, yeah, how cold I was all the time or like yeah. how I had a breakfast sandwich over the summer after my freshman year and realized I was like full for the morning, which I hadn't experienced in a long time. And I just forgot all these little details, but it was a very real experience that I think a lot of people go through. 
So wanted to highlight that. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing. Again, it's something that I think represents a pretty dark time in both of our lives. We've talked about how intersected with mental health, how we didn't even have the words to describe what was going on. And this was also something that I didn't talk about very openly while I was still in it. I think that's really hard to do. And I commend people who are able to do that. You mentioned Ali Ostrander. She's someone who's really incredible about talking about these challenges while she's still kind of ongoing in that struggle. But I think what's cool is to be able to zoom out and say like, yeah, that was a period of time, but it is not a life defining thing in that it's still going to, you know, completely control either of our lives is really now something that we can reflect on. Notice like, yeah, maybe sometimes I have a day that's a little worse on the body image metric or whatever. But at the end of the day, like we are fueling for performance and doing the very best that we can. And I think anyone out there who's just dealing with this, getting help is the first step talk to someone, start with just like a friend, talk to literally anyone. You could talk to us like we're around, email us if you don't know us. It's something that sometimes just being able to unburden yourself with that information is a really good first step. And then you can get connected with more professional resources, but no one should have to suffer through this. And many people will, because that's just the reality of this space. And from the responses we got, it's clear that a lot of people are in this, but it doesn't have to control your life. Yeah. Thanks for the recommendations there. I think one thing that I want to put out there too is like, even if you don't yet feel comfortable talking to someone or you're not even sure if this is something that you're really battling, there's now so many good resources on the internet. So even like we mentioned Good for Girls book, Ali Ostrander's YouTube, there's quite a few other runner account YouTubes that we could put on there that you could follow. At least I know a few. Ali Ostrander also, I will say, has a really good video that describes the footlocker curse which is just, I think, highlighting that there's been very few examples of girls who have won the Foot Locker Championships in high school and gone on to win the NCAA Championships in college, whereas for men, that trajectory is much, much, much more common. And that's mainly because the women's development trajectory looks quite different. Like we go through puberty, there's a natural dip in performance, but the women or the girls, I guess, who are winning the high school championships were usually trying to prevent puberty by having these severe eating disorders and the wheels would come off the bus in college. It's a really common trajectory. I think Katie and I both kind of experienced similar-ish things in our own ways, trying to prevent that puberty onset of weight. So if you want to go out and just like watch some of these videos, I think this is a really good way to start educating and understanding that this is like what the forces against this are and why it's so pervasive. And that can already just be a comforting realization that like you're not alone and it's not really your fault. Absolutely. And I would say also, if you're like, I actually don't have any type of disordered eating or anything like that, it's still valuable to educate yourself because it is so common that it's helpful to be someone who can see those warning signs. If you're a coach, for example, or if you're just someone who trains in a group and you're worried about someone, like sometimes it just takes one person being like, hey, are you okay to really bridge that gap or give someone a safe space to talk about it. So we really encourage people to educate themselves as much as they can, even if you personally are not dealing with this. And I think that's the broader purpose of this episode. So like if you're a male athlete who's been listening till now and you're still here, thank you for listening. And again, this is an issue that affects female and male athletes and just people in general. So we shine the spotlight on all of the more like cultural female specific issues, but it's something that can be a big challenge across the board. Absolutely. So we've been going for a while now. This is going to be our longest podcast ever. And I'm wondering, Elena, if we should move our discussion of the medical system to the forces we're up against episode. Because uh, I was thinking the same or, thing because there is yeah, so much you have to here. catch a flight. Yeah, I also <laughs> have to catch a flight soon-ish to a race that I'm going to. But I would not want to gloss over that. There's some really good, important <laughs> stories in there. So let's move that one to the forces we're up against because it kind of bridged the line. As we mentioned before, a lot of these subjects are just so intertwined. It was really hard to try to have correct buckets for them. But I think that we will push that to a later episode. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for sharing and for engaging with me on this. I really enjoyed this whole process and we encourage people to keep 
sending in their stories. And if you don't mind, if you could give us a review on Spotify, those ratings really help us promote the podcast. So the three dots on the Spotify page is the way to do that. But anyway, thank you so much uh, for listening. And we're excited to tune in next week with our episode on community and sport. Mm-hmm.